In the summer of 2000, a good friend of mine named Rachel invited me to spend a week with her at her church camp. Being a teen of faith and also interested in continuing our friendship after she left for Michigan State University, I agreed rather rapidly. Somehow in the planning and packing for the trip, I never asked an obvious question. Were there any religious practices I should know about? You see, though I grew up in a wide variety of Protestant denominations and considered myself something of a pro at blending in with whatever congregation I happened to find myself in, whether it was Methodist or Lutheran or Presbyterian, I hadn't quite grasped that Rachel's church was different. So when I was greeted with questions about various people named Joseph Smith, I had no answer. I knew a few bits and bobs of church history, but had not encountered this family, which was so important to the Mormons and to the community of Christ, which Rachel was a part of. My sense of alienation grew during the week, though fortunately Rachel was able to help me navigate a bit in this strange land. The week was supposed to culminate with something they called a tabernacle simulation, And though I don't remember exactly what that meant, there was one moment of that time that stands out to me clearly. I was praying, waiting in line with the other campers, and suddenly found myself at the front of the line. Sometimes our prayers have this tendency to block the world around us. Going to step up on the chancel, one of the adults pulled me aside and hissed at me, you would approach the Holy of Holies wearing shoes? Looking down, I saw that everyone before me had indeed kicked their shoes off before going up onto the chancel, and were not putting them back on until they'd stepped down. Embarrassed, I removed my shoes and continued with the event. I don't remember exactly what it entailed, as I said, just that I kept stewing inside, thinking how embarrassed I was to have not known, and how it had not been made clear to me ahead of time, and so on. You can probably guess this frame of mind. In the end, it was a good lesson in humility for me, that despite thinking that I had this whole religion thing figured out, there were many more aspects than I had previously thought. However, whenever this story of Moses approaching God at the burning bush comes up, I find myself drawn to that line where God says to Moses, remove your shoes. Here's Moses, former Egyptian prince, now working for Jethro, his father-in-law, as a shepherd, somewhere up on a mountain near the plains of Midian. It's a rocky area with little tufts of grass sticking up that the sheep are able to find and eat. And each day is a little different as the sheep tend to find where the tufts of grass are most delicious. This day, the sheep lead Moses to a different spot, west of Jethro's homestead. And Moses, he notices a great deal, possibly because this is a new place. He's attuned to the danger. He wants to keep the sheep safe. And in this place of heightened awareness, he notices something truly weird. There's a bush fire, but the bush isn't turning black. It's not turning to ashes, even. And moving closer, this fiery bush calls out to Moses, calls him by name, Moses, Moses. 
and then it calls him to remove his shoes because he is standing on holy ground. Moses obeys the voice, taking off his sandals and approaching as he has been instructed. What would that be like? Was he filled with anger or fear or wonder? Was the ground rocky beneath his feet? Is this a matter of feeling vulnerable before God or connected with the land? Anathea Portier-Young from Duke Divinity School puts it this way. For now, in this moment, Moses is told to remove his shoes. Draw away the covering that has protected you. Clear away the barrier between yourself and the earth so that your bare feet may touch and sink and take root in this holy ground. Let this living soil coat your feet. Dig in, feel your way, and find your balance here upon this mountain so that its life becomes your life, its fire your fire, its sacred sand and loam and rock, the ground of your seeing, speaking, and calling. For many in the world, the only time to remove your shoes is on entering your house or maybe a friend's house or a place of worship, places where you feel at home. Perhaps God is calling Moses to be at home in God's presence by this action. His whole life, Moses has been a stranger in a strange land, a baby of slaves raised by royalty, a royal prince with empathy toward the oppressed, a fugitive who finds shelter in the wilderness, a man of Egypt living with his Midian father-in-law. Now God asks Moses to be at home, fully at home in God's presence. This is a little like the CEO of a company calling you in and then telling you to remove your shoes as you enter. That's a really strange and yet really affirming gesture at the same time. Carla Swomala of Luther College in Iowa writes, is it possible that in calling, out to God, uh, in calling out to Moses, God wanted Moses to be Moses, to be himself, rather than pretending to be someone else? She goes on to retell an old Hasidic story. Rabbi Zussia, when he was an old man, said, In the world to come, they will not ask me, Why were you not more like Moses? Rather, they will ask me, Why were you not more like Zussia? Why were you not more like yourself in this world? I find this interpretation to be powerful, especially as God reveals God's self to Moses as, I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. Just as God has asked Moses to become more vulnerable and more himself through the act of removing his shoes, God shares in the intimacy of vulnerability through revealing God's own holy name. Indeed, throughout the burning bush conversation, God reveals God's self time and time again. I will be with you. Say to them, I am has sent me to you. I'll give you signs. I'll help you speak. This divine name. Aha. That means both I am that I am and I will be who I will be is so holy that the scribes writing the story of Exodus never included its vowels. These are all consonants, 
no vowels. In ancient practice, no one was to pronounce it except for the high priest and only in the innermost portion of the temple in Jerusalem on Yom Kippur. In other words, the holiest place in the holiest day of the year by the holiest representative of the people. When it was written down, it was written originally as these four Hebrew letters, yod Hey vav Hey, which became known in Greek as the Tetragrammaton, Tetragrammaton, four letters. Fancy way of saying the four-letter word, but not that kind of four-letter word. In common prayer, this name was never to be pronounced, but instead replaced with the word Adonai in Hebrew or Kurie in Greek, both of which mean our Lord. In English Bibles, this trend has continued, though the Tetragrammaton has been replaced with the word Lord in small caps. If you see in the Old Testament of the Bibles, wherever it says Lord in small caps, it's a version of the divine name that has been replaced to keep the name holy. Despite not being pronounced in full, the divine name appears in many Hebrew names, and it's often shortened to Yah or Yahu, like the names Netanyahu, gift of God, Yermiyahu, exalted of God, Jeremiah, Yermiyahu, Jeremiah, Kizik Yahu, Hezekiah, Kizik Yahu, strength of God, Yahushua, God saves, which is Joshua or Jesus in English. Additional practices have sprung up around protecting the power of the holy name, referring to it as Hashem, which means the name, or placing a dash between consonants like G-D. Scholars in the 1800s started dividing the Torah into different authorship based on whether the author used the divine name for God or the Hebrew word El or Elohim, which meant God or gods generally, rather than a personal name. These scholars also attempted to recreate the exact pronunciation of the holy name, which has been lost. Their attempt was rather misguided, however. They combined the consonants of the tetragrammaton, the consonants of the divine name, with the vowels from the word Adonai. That's a weird way to make a possible pronunciation. Since these scholars were German, they used the J to represent the Yod, the Y sound. And when their work was published in English, the English J sound was assumed to be used instead, leading to Jeho instead of Yaho. As you can probably tell, I'm trying to avoid saying the whole name, even in this place, in respect for its holiness. And though we have lost the original pronunciation, and should avoid trying to recreate it out of deferences to the practices of holding it separate and holy, the consonants themselves reveal much about God. Yod, He, Vav, He, when written vertically, reinforce the, image, uh, reinforce the idea that humanity is created in the image of God. In this, you can sort of see a human image, the divine name speaking to humanity. My point with all of this is that God, in revealing the divine name to Moses, was revealing a great deal of God's self to him. 
Moses, in turn, was vulnerable with God, revealing a great deal of his own self in fear and humility. It is exactly when we are voluntarily vulnerable with God that we can truly be in relationship with God. Had I understood this at camp, maybe I would have been more focused on experiencing God in a way that was new to me, rather than upset for being singled out. As you connect with God in worship and prayer, think about how you address God in those times. Try removing your shoes, literally or figuratively. For example, in our next hymn, Try replacing the name of God in the first line with Adonai, so that instead of the song saying, O thou great J name for God, we sing, O thou Adonai instead, and see how this replacement works in practice. And now, may God reveal God's self to you in your life. May Christ pray with you when you pray, and may the Spirit walk with you, even in vulnerable times that you may know God as God knows you. Amen.